Good morning. Third time. Good to see you all. How you doing? My name is Andrew. I'm one of the leaders here, um, pastors here at Sanctuary, and uh, I uh, have been really excited about this series that we've been going through called Raising Life in a Culture of Death, or called just Raise Life. Um, I want to talk really, I want to just give you guys, sometimes I realize um, we have I have kind of a path that we're walking on, and I don't sometimes like move the veil back to allow you to see sort of where we're going and what we're doing and just assume it's really intuitive, and I recognize it may not be. Um, so on Easter, we just sort of set up a base theology like, hey, it's Easter. This dude, rabbi, rose from the dead, and that somehow has some implications for us uh, in how we live, how we think about life, how we think about who is ruling the world, how we think about death. Um, and then we started this series. And, and so week one after Easter, next slide. Uh, week one, we basically talked about what does it mean to, to let life be raised in us? We used the phrase, we need to fight for life. Sunday's a day where we come together and recognize that there are dead parts in us. And if we're not attentive to them, if we're not on top of that, if we're not recognizing, that's why we do this confession, even an assurance as part of that process, that weekly rhythm to kind of counteract all of the systems, rhythms, and influence of the week that, that kind of pushes us into these temptations towards death and recognizing that God needs to actually heal us. All right, we've all seen the burned out nonprofit, you know, leader. We've seen the person who, who, who is on fire about changing the world and yet you're watching them deteriorate inside. We, we recognize as followers of Jesus before anything else, before the world needs saving, like capital W, we do. And so we need to raise life in us, and we need to be aware of that and allowing God to, 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 to work in us. Week two was last week. We need to pursue the, the life raiser, which is sort of a silly way to put that. But we need a radical pursuit of God. God is not opposed to effort. He is opposed to earning. You are loved, we believe. The Christian story is so dramatically different from every other secular and religious story. It's so powerful, this idea of grace. It is a uniquely Judeo-Christian understanding of the world. Actually, what goes around doesn't come back around in some larger cosmic sense. And so we need to actually, we don't need to worry about earning God's favor, but what we do need to do is to be radical pursuers of it. We cannot act like we can sit back and not chase and claim the promises of God. So if we want to be people in this really lofty thing, Easter people in a good Friday world, right? I, I get, I'm like a vision guy. Like when you do the Myers-Briggs strength finder stuff, I get like, I get like straight up or like aroused by that stuff. That sounded inappropriate. I get excited about that stuff in a totally a, yeah. Yeah. Let's restart that. I get excited about vision. Some of you, any, any vision people out there? Like you, like you hear a vision of the way the world could be, and you don't need any details. You're like, let's do this thing. How many people are detail people? You're like, that's cool, you have the vision, but yeah, how are we going to get there? Any of you like that? Yeah, yeah, I'm not like that. I love you people because you actually make it happen. We just get you all, you know. We just make you anxious so that was not going to happen. Um, so the, the idea that a big vision of like renewing and restoring the world and raising life in a place where we see death all around us, we need to know like where to raise life. We need to know what promises God has given us that we can partner with him. We sometimes go blind and assume we know what justice looks like. 
We assume we know what the right thing is. We assume we know what God's purposes are and then we make God in our own image. So last week was about the radical pursuit of God. Before anything else, we need to actually start there. I don't want to put my personal emotions, a particular cultural moment in front of the word of God. Because what happens when we do that is we end up being maybe on the right side of history, but we're on the wrong side of God. And we don't want that. So lastly, this week, not lastly, we're about halfway through. Week three then is we need to be positioned then to raise life. If God is renewing and restoring inside of us and reconciling us, then we need to look out and go, okay, where is God reconciling? How do we partner with him? What promises? Today I want to talk about then how do we then position ourselves? How do, we, how do we be in the right spot, in the right place that we would be filled with God to be able to raise life, to be able to be people that in our friendships, that in the systems of the world, when we look out, whether it's massive poverty, whether it's abuses happening in our own backyard, whether it's our family systems, that we need a culture of life-giving, beautiful Jesusness happening how do we do that? And are we positioned, like is our, is our place, are we centered in such a way that we are able to do this? So that's what I want to talk about today. And the verse that Edison just read, we're going to return back to in a little bit. But I want to start with a, a philosophy story. Anyone ever take like philosophy 101? Yeah, a couple of you. Um, how many of you love philosophy? This is probably the same people as the vision people, right? You're like, yeah, man, just abstract ideas. Like, give me a record player, a pair of glasses that I don't even need, you know, an espresso and a really dirty book, like, that smells amazing. You know what I'm talking about? You crack open a little bit. I was at the Harvard Library last year of, like, the, all these, like, first editions. Oh, my gosh. I'm, like, looking through the glass, and it's just, like, I, I don't know what the equivalent would be for you, you know, like, going by a pastry case or something that's filled with, like, the greatest pastries or I, I don't know. I don't know what it would, whatever. For me, this was like, oh, I just want to, like I'm inches from it and I can't get through the glass. The attendant came over to me. I was like taking pictures. Anyone who follows me on Instagram, I took one yesterday. I got so reprimanded. I almost got the group kicked out because I had been going around and taking pictures. Um, anyway, philosophy. I like that. There's a story, and it's a question really. And here's the question. If there was a machine that... If you extracted your brain and your heart, so the thing that allows you to perceive reality, think, and your heart, it keeps you alive, and you could plug it into this like futuristic machine and just sit there in a room somewhere and experience all of your deepest desires. Be with the people that you want to be with. Maybe it's marry the person you want to marry, achieve all the career goals you ever dreamed. You kind of set this stuff, set this stuff up in advance. You know, it's like the matrix, but everything like works out, right? You just plug in and you would live this whole life. You'd retire in the Bahamas. You'd, you know, you've got grandkids. Everything just works out beautifully or, the, or whatever the vision is for you. And the question that gets posed to the class is if you could do that and you wouldn't know, I mean, you would know at the beginning, but then at that point on, you wouldn't know that you had done that. Would you choose to get plugged into that? Would you choose to go, yes, I would like to be plugged into that amazing matrix because everything would be, I would never know the difference. It would be perfect. And so it would be leaving everything else real behind. And so the first part, or the first impulse for some is like, if I would never know the difference and everything would be perfect, 
Oftentimes it's when we're going through really rough things. Like, that, that doesn't sound so bad. But, but at the end of the day, I think for many of us, and I want to put words in your mouth, but I think we go, no, no, but that's not real. It's still, there's something that chafes against us. Even if it, like, eventually I wouldn't even remember or know, or maybe just rumors of another world, but I would know that I'm leaving everything that is actually real behind. So just kind of hold this story up. Like, what, what would I do? as we explore a couple of stories from, from Jesus. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 25, verse 14. Jesus is describing what the kingdom of God's like. What does the rule and reign of Jesus look like? What does it look like when God is, is ruling? And so he tells these stories. I'm gonna tell a couple stories from Jesus uh, today. So if you need to follow along, I really do encourage you to. The references are on the screen. Or if you're someone who's more of an auditory um, learner, then just maybe close your eyes and hear the story. The kingdom of God, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. So this is the master. To one, he gave his servant five bags of gold. In your translation, it may say talents. Just, it's a form of currency. To another, two bags. And to another, one bag. Each according to to his ability. Then the master went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. A few things first before we go on. This kind of praise in even a story like this that Jesus is making up would have been like unheard of. Elevating a slave to the place of master. You can enjoy what the master enjoys. Slaves were always inferior to masters. In Jesus' story, the faithful slaves were lifted into the same kind of life, the same kind of joy that's experienced by the master. They were invited into his company and pleasure as sons. Important to keep in mind then as we come into this last part. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you're not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put your money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. It's like you could have at least put it in a savings account. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has, whoever has will be given more. 
and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even when they have, will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a Jewish allusion to hell. By burying the master's talent, the slave showed what he thought of the master and the master's pursuit. His heart was so far from the heart of the master. The failure of this third slave is what? Is what? Inactivity. He says, you lazy servant. Those who bury the lives of God, the things that God has given them, will be cast away when you neglect to engage them. This is a story of indifference. Hold that there for a moment. Turn a few pages back to the left, Matthew 22. Jesus spoke to them again. I'll give you a chance to find it. Matthew 22, verse 1. Indifference. You lazy servant. You'd think he'd be easy on him. Hey, at least he didn't lose it, right? At least he didn't lose it. But for the master, it's far more important that he did something with what was given to him. Matthew 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, this is like Jesus' MO. He goes around everywhere just being like, you want to know what it's like? You want to know what this thing that's happening is like? You want to know what the world renewed is like? Do you want to know what the kingdom, the rule and reign of God that you can begin to live in now is like? He just goes around telling all these crazy stories. And he says, guys, guys, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Already loaded Jewish language, a wedding banquet. He sent his servants for those who had been invited to the banquet and t- uh, to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat and cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. The master in the story, the God character is like, God, God, I've like set everything up. This is an unbelievable picture of grace. Just come, come to the table. And apparently some are too busy to come. They paid no attention and they went off. Skip ahead here, verse 8, just for brevity. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. It's like, all right. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. This is an unbelievable, just an aside, this is our God. If you're brand new to the faith, if you're just walking through the doors, if you're skeptical of religion, just know that our understanding of the world is that the love and logic at the center of everything, the God of the universe, this is what he's like. The good, the bad, come. Just come. It would have been the elite that would have initially been invited. And and Jesus tells the story like those are the ones that don't see it, don't need it, don't get it. And so everyone, the good, the bad, he goes out into the streets and invites anyone who's walking around, come in. So they did this, they went out on the street, the wedding hall was filled, but when the king came in to see the guests, the story takes a weird twist. He noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. So apparently, like, the dude understood like what he had done wrong. We may not, but this guy did. Then the king told the attendants, 
tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness. Yikes. Little strong, like he didn't come dressed. What's happening? This man who's too lazy to whatever doesn't come prepared for the thing. The wedding banquet in ancient Judaism, this is a picture of the end. A picture of everything being renewed. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every person who has said yes to Jesus. Everybody who has accepted, received the grace of God. Who has come around and all gathered together in this family of misfits and broken. The God of the universe who's reconciled and rescued. Who's thrown the doors wide open that says not wanting anyone to perish. This is the picture of a wedding banquet. There's no confusion in like Jewish literature about what's being talked about. And apparently... Somebody who was not prepared, who didn't come like ready to receive, is somehow thrown out. The man was too lazy to get dressed for the wonderful occasion. Just like the slave master, in order to stay inside with the king, one has to be passionate about the king's concerns. This will be comforting for some of us when we know that our God opposes the evil in the world. When our God opposes the brokenness, when our God has done things like spark the abolition, abolition movement in our country, when our God has set free the captives, when our God has used even those who want nothing to do with them to redeem and restore and to reconcile. For some, it's really comforting. It's comforting to know like what the king's concerns are. And then for some of us, it's actually frightening because we're not generous people, because we're not attentive to the ache of the world. Lastly, there's one more to kind of reinforce this. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. If you have your Bibles open, we're going to go back. This is the parable that's told right after the one that we had just read about the, the bags of gold. And so this is another picture of sort of the end of God reconciling everything. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom is prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. This is Jesus speaking. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, like the people that were like pushed aside. Lord, when did we ever see you hungry? Like, when did we feed you or thirsty and give you something to eat? When did, you, when did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus spoke of a time to come in which everyone will stand before him and be separated. The common thread running through all these stories is rejection of inaction and of indifference, a rejection of inaction, a rejection of indifference. The blessed are passionate about what really matters. In fact, he always sets them up in terms of these really over-the-top, like, heaven and hell things, which I think is telling. We've talked a little bit of this before. Um, one writer says, the, f the flames of heaven are hotter than the flames of hell. And it's this like metaphorical picture of like when you're in the presence of perfect generosity, it's gonna suck if you're not generous. 
When you're in the presence of ultimate diversity and passion, three in one, gathering all the nations, and you have racist tendencies, it's going to be hard. When you come with a self-righteousness, like I'm better than so-and-so because I say this, 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 and you're in the presence. Anne Lamont is this great writer, very like kind of progressive liberal Christian writer. She is talking about um, around the time that George uh, Bush uh, Sr., Jr., George Bush Jr. was in office. Uh, and needless to say, they were deeply diametrically opposed. And George Bush and Anne Lamont both claimed to be followers of Jesus. Despite what you may think about Anne Lamont, if you know who she is, she's done unbelievable work of pouring out God's grace. I don't need to justify her salvation to you. George Bush, despite what you may think about George Bush Jr., I mean, the administration was one of the ones that gave more money to Africa than any administration, including the Obama administration. So for all the ways you can probably point to, that's unchristian, that's unchristian, like you could anyone else in the room. These two people claim to be followers of Jesus and making sense of that. And Anne Lamont talks about, I know at some point I'm going to have to be around that big table at the end of the world, sitting next, I know God's going to sit me next to GW. And she just like swears in her book like four times after that. It's like, I know it. And just like looking up at the sky. But it's this moment of her trying to reconcile forgiveness. In other words, if you're in the presence of perfect forgiveness and reconciliation, who looks past our brokenness, it's going to be hard. And she paints this picture of how hard it's going to be. I say all that and that all three of these stories about God resist, like going like, if you're going to be indifferent, this inaction, this is like heaven and hell to care about the things that are good and true and beautiful or to not is literally in, in, in some mysterious way, literally or metaphorically, the difference between heaven and, and, and hell. In fact, many people have talked about hell simply just being in the presence of God and not trusting God's love. The flames of heaven may be hotter than the flames of hell. The common thread in these stories is rejection. Rejection. George Bernard Shaw wrote this. The worst sin toward our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That is the essence of inhumanity. So what's our posture supposed to be? How are we going to be oriented in a way that we can raise life? And I, I would humbly submit to you that the verse that Edison read to us, this is like our key. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness includes everything, justice, things being right. It's what every nonprofit, it's what the UN, it's what UNICEF, it's what they all long for, regardless of their vision of it. It's everything being right. It's shalom. It's peace with the creation and the earth. It's peace with each other. It's internal peace. It's like war, it's, it's a world peace that is beautiful and redemptive. It's the lion laying down with the lamb. These are all biblical pictures. It's this deep ache. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For what? For they will be filled. Now, I used to overlook this all the time in this passage. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. If you are hungry, do you have food in you? I know, I'll Captain Obvious right now. If you're hungry, there's no trick question here. If you're hungry, is there likely food in your belly? No. Some of you are like, well, technically, yes, there's still some. You know what I'm saying? If you're thirsty, you, you need what? You need water. This, these words of Jesus, blessed, which is like God is with you. That's all that means. God's with you. His blessing is on you. He, he's here. He's with you. I am with those who are righteous 
I'm with those who have it all together. I'm with those who are just. I'm with those who are perfectly generous. I'm with those who totally have like game plans to solve every world problem and every local family problem and every problem in their own heart. No. Blessed are those who hunger for it, who recognize the ache, who see the disconnect. Blessed are those with the empty stomach but know that they have an empty stomach. Blessed are those who thirst and long for things being made right. This is a blessing that comes in the lack for you will be filled. Those who hobble along with deep aches, who press on through difficulty, these are the ones who God is with. At a personal level, if you have angst at your own lifestyle, it's not a sign of failure. He says, God's saying it's a sign that your heart still beats and you're actually awake and aware. You're actually alert. You actually have a chance of being filled, right? Because you actually recognize that there's a gap that you need to be filled. God says, I am with you in the tension. Jesus blesses. I am with you even when you don't have it all together. But what he is asking in all three of these stories is that you are aware and attentive to the purposes of the king. You will be filled. See, the ache and the hunger and the pursuit are actually crucial. Where there is no ache, where there is no hunger, when there is only distraction and indifference, we commit an incredibly deadly sin, which is the sin of sloth. Just told me what the, the sign for sloth is today. Apparently it's that. Anyone know this? No. Sloth. I don't know. What is this, Jess? Oh, Jess just made it up. I take it back. <laughs> that, was really, that was really mean, Jess. Thanks. <laughs> sloth. Here, here's the definition for us. <laughs> that would have been a perfect thing to like, cue a picture of a sloth right there. Sloth, at its core, sloth moves us away from everything that ultimately matters and directs us toward simple distractions. Sloth is not, and hear this please, sloth is not mere laziness. Sloth is not the picture from like, you know, Brad Pitt's seven movie of the guy who's just like massive. Like sloth is not the person who's just so lazy they don't do anything. Sloth can actually be really passionate and zealous. You can be really energetic and be slothful. You're energetic and zealous towards all the wrong things, towards things that, that, that don't ultimately matter. Sloth is not rest. Rest is good. Sloth is the kind of rest that is like counterproductive, that it's distracting and numbing. Sloth is escapism of the most deadly sort. Sloth saps our time and emotions through, I mean, we could pick the thing. If you're even like remotely listening right now, I'm sure things have like bubbled to the surface. I love sports, man, but your favorite sports team very quickly sports lead to sloth. When you know more stats than you know Bible verses, if you're a Christian, here, good, man. You rearrange your priorities. Sloth is escapism. It's in, it could be a fashion. It's obsession over our appearance. It's, it, it's distraction, leaving no energy for the things that matter most. Sloth is I can't handle the ache. I don't want to be aware of what's happening in here or, or more so often out there. 
Sloth is actually best expressed by passion over trivial matters. Uh, Blaise Pascal wrote this. The quote's on the screen. The same man who spends so many days and nights in fury and despair at losing some office or at some imaginary affront to his honor is the very one who knows that he is going to lose everything through death but feels neither anxiety nor emotion. It is a monstrous thing to see one and the same heart at once so sensitive to minor things and so strangely insensitive to the greatest. Nothing is so clearly modern. Nothing is so clearly Western. Nothing is so clearly American. I would submit to you as sloth. Dante correctly calls sloth a failure to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. So sloth is like antithetical to all of that. It's like Jesus says a heaven-born life is loving God and being awake to the things of God, being awake to wonder and beauty and majesty majesty all around you, what Jesus is doing. It's loving God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Sloth is the opposite of that. It's being despondent to these things. Sloth is a hell-like condition. Sloth is content to aim us towards apathy or like fanaticism. Like push us towards things like, have you ever heard the, the term, uh, it's just coined the New York Times, I can't think of the article, outrage porn. Have you heard this phrase? Outrage porn. It's like the addiction to being mad at stuff on the internet, essentially. Which sounds ridiculous until you realize like you're one of those YouTube commenters. You need to repent if you comment ever on a YouTube video, even if it's positive. <laughs> like it's the darkest place I've ever seen is comments. Under, I mean, it could be like, Oh, I don't know. It's like pick something not like Elmo saying hi. Do you know what I mean? Like, like think of the most innocuous thing. It's like Elmo just going like, hi, kids, video over. Sesame Street is of the devil. Sesame Street is the greatest thing ever. Like diatribes and breaking out into why Elmo represents everything that's evil. But I don't know. I think he's having an affair with so-and-so. I mean, people, it's, I don't even know where they come from. I'm convinced that it's the devil has just breathed life or death into that world. Outrage porn, I, I just mentioned that. It, it can be fanaticism. It can be a thing where you look for the thing to get mad at. You look for a controversy. You look for ways to tear down, to be cynical. You look for ways to be right. Sloth is a redirected zeal. It's either apathy and despondency and a needing to numb and disconnect, or it's a lot of whole passion in places that are trivial. It's I know more about Kim Kardashian's love life than I do anything that's of good and tribute. It's like, I know what happened last week in the, in the, the upper echelon of, of celebrity gossip, but I didn't know there was an earthquake that probably left 1,500 dead yesterday. And not only do, well, I heard about it, and that's sad, and I hit like on somebody's pulse, but did I stop and did I pray? Did I ask, hey, you know what, I'm gonna, I don't have an extra cup of coffee I'm gonna give to that. I'm gonna be aware and attentive to the ache of the world out there, and, all, and, and, and this includes the hunger and thirst for righteousness in our own life. This is why this piggybacks so perfectly on last week. The radical pursuit of God. If we're going to be people chasing the things of God, we need to be people positioned then. God is raising life in us. I am chasing where God is looking. And in doing that, I want to be actually like in a place where I am now aware of the concerns of God. And I am working to push back the things that will lead me towards destruction. All right, 
For those of you like, who have a, a theology of the devil or systematic evil, I, I think it's really clear to understand like evil pushes us not in some dramatic way. It pushes us just towards those things that make us irrelevant and unattentive to the things that matter most. Here's the thing with sloth and most issues. We all would say, I am not slothful. No one who is slothful thinks they are slothful. It's like no one who's a fundamentalist thinks they're a fundamentalist. No one who's racist actually thinks they're racist. No one. I have yet to meet a person who's like, yep, just pretty, pretty racist. Yeah, sloth, oh yeah, seriously, yeah. That's what I love about the church, by the way. We come together and we have like really like, you came hoping to be like super encouraged and you're like, oh man, the pastor's like in, like in a really negative place today. But we, this is great. This is why we love it. We get excited about rooting out the stuff that's wrong in our hearts. I, I sometimes wonder, and I mean no offense to atheists in the room, none, I truly don't. I just have a hard time believing there are atheists somewhere going, we need to repent of the ways that we have not been attentive to, to serving the, the, like the broken like there's stuff in my own heart I need to be aware of. Let's get together and recognize how we have all failed, how we all continue to miss it, and we want to align ourselves with what's true. Let's do this all the time. Let's just get together. Let's be reminded of that, and we can be reminded of how good God is and how he enables us to win. Sloth. We actually have to have faith that there's something greater, and we have to be willing to go, God, reveal the places in my life where I don't see it. I want a vision of a bigger and greater life. So let's circle back to the, to the, the parable of the talents, the parable of the, of the bags of gold. Then the man who had, one, who had received one bag of gold said, Master, he said, I know that you're a hard man, harvesting what you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seeds. So I was afraid and went out, and I buried your gold in the ground. When I look at the atrocities of what's happening in Syria right now, and if you don't know, you should definitely look it up worse than anything we've seen in a long time. Like, take the earthquake in Haiti, take Katrina, combine them and multiply it by, I think it's like two, and you're still under the number of people who are displaced, hurting, or dying. When I look at that, I, I sometimes wonder who buried something. When I look at the fact that in South Providence, one in five kids is growing up in a home where there's a, a parent who's incarcerated, I go, Wait, who buried something? When I look around at our own church and I see the lack of like counsel for like young married folks as their marriages are struggling and suffering and the opportunity for us to minister and encourage and pull one another in, I go, who buried something? When I look at the loneliness of some of our singles in our community who are like hurting and just dying for a place to identify and be connected, I go, who, who buried something? And I don't mean that in like, well, let's find like the culprit. I mean that in a way of like, hopefully encouragement. Like, where do we need to break the chains of sloth? Where do we need to be attentive and aware? Where do we need to repent and be, be able to immerse ourselves in these words of Jesus? I am with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Sloth. Sloth is... is, is I'm thirsty, and the sink is too far away, so I'm just going to go to the bathroom and get it from the toilet. Like, that's sloth. 
So Arthur goes, there's something better. There's something more beautiful, but, but, but it's quicker I can get it here. And not realizing that you've settled. Not recognizing that that's what's happening. So I, I want to invite Emily up, a few people of the band. I want them to just, just play for a little bit, just to quell the distraction of the music downstairs. And I want to walk us through just a, a, a prayer of repentance and an invitation for all of us to be more attentive to the brokenness in our own hearts and in the world around us. If you're new, or if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here, um, maybe for you, 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 you don't really feel comfortable identifying yourself with the pain of the world or the pain around you. That, that's okay. Maybe view this as a time where you're kind of looking in on the Christian community, just wanting to be all that God says we can be. It's us wanting to come to the wedding in our, in our uh, proper attire to be ready, to be concerned about the things of the king. It's us wanting to know that, well, to serve Jesus is to serve the least of these around us. It's us not wanting to be people who bury our gold, but take our talents, take our gifts, whether we feel like they're incredible or they are like weak, and to actually use them, to multiply them. Lord Jesus, we repent of wanting to be greatly known for anything other than loving people greatly. We repent of a love and life that does anything less than love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We repent of not daily, relentlessly, extravagantly loving our neighbor next door, though we keep saying that we want to change the world. We repent of hating, avoiding, or dreading suffering, though we say we want to be found worthy to suffer the cross of Jesus. We repent of not dying to dead things so that there can be a resurrection in us of real things. We repent of loving our agendas more instead of interrupting our agendas because we love Jesus most. God, forgive us for our lack of prayer because the very root of our lack of growth is almost always that. Forgive us for more interest in the paparazzi and in movies and in famous personalities and People magazine than in praying for those in yesterday's devastating earthquake or the homeless in our midst or the persecuted church or the oppressed or our relationship with our parents. Forgive us for our lavish church project entrepreneurial plans instead of our plans to love lavishly as a church. Forgive us for not serving the outcast, but serving the outcast notice to go further away. Forgive us for not loving our enemies 
otherwise known as our brothers and turning those who are known as our brothers and sisters into our enemies and forgive us for wanting safe lives of comfort instead of living dangerous lives of love that speak of the comfort found in you. We repent of loving you, Lord, so little because we have loved ourselves so much. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sit at the center of God's desire for us. Though we fail now, though we don't achieve it all the time, it is our opportunity for God to move through us. He is slowly cutting away the gangrene so we can stand again. He is bandaging our broken legs so we can run for the first time. And so I pray, Lord, that we would have the passion to sit again and again on the operating table. That we would be passionate, Lord, to care for the limbs that you are reconstructing. That we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. That we would trust the promise that you are making all things beautiful and making things whole. And that our call is not to wait. In every one of these stories, you were mad because the person waited. Waiting, Lord, for you to make all things new looks like actually joining and partnering with you in that process. May we be filled Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the things that are beautiful and right so that we would be filled and that fullness would overflow everywhere. Being positioned to raise life in a culture of death means hungering and thirsting for righteousness internally and externally. It is waking up It is waking up.